Well, let us turn in God's Word this morning to the first chapter of John's Gospel, John's Gospel, chapter 1, reading what is called the uh, prologue of uh, John's Gospel. I wonder if some of the young people are wondering what a prologue is. Well, it's the word that goes before, and this prologue has been described as uh, a foyer, or what we might call a narthex. So children, as we walk into the church, we come first of all into the foyer or the narthex, and then you come through the doors into the main sanctuary. So uh, think of it that way, that as we read these 18 verses of John's Gospel, we are walking through the introduction to the main part of John's Gospel, and it's full of many rich truths, and we'll be Camping out today on verses 14 to 18, uh, taking the first half of verse 14 this morning and the rest of the passage, God willing, this evening. So let us hear God's word. And as uh, we come to this passage, having been asked to speak on the uh, subject of outreach, I do want to say that I do not see myself as an expert in outreach, but uh, I am burden to speak about this subject and so thankful for uh, the elders in asking me to do so. So John 1 verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The Lord bless this reading of his holy word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. And Lord, may we be as John and just be full of your truths and proclaim to others the light of the world is Jesus Christ, that many may come to see him as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, put that desire in us to talk about our Savior. We ask that you will be with 
Reverend Trumper and pray, Lord, that you will speak through him, that we may hear that message, the message of truth, the message of Jesus Christ, the light of the world. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the title of our series today is Christ Shows Us How, and looking this morning at some principles of outreach, and we come to this wonderful passage, very familiar passage, very profound passage from God's Word. And it reminds us that the Christ who gave us the mandate, the command to go out into all the nations and to bring the gospel, discipling nations and not simply looking for conversions, is the one who, first of all, practiced what he preached throughout the course of his ministry as he sought to bring people under his reign through the grace of God that was manifested through him. But there are different ways in which we can approach this subject of outreach, bearing in mind that it is a command and not an option for God's people. We can approach it, and legitimately so, as an ought to of the Christian faith, and I'm sure that that will come through both this morning and this evening. But the angle with which I want us to look at this subject today is not that we ought to be reaching out, but that as the followers of Jesus Christ, we get to be reaching out. That while there is a command that comes to us from our Lord and King, that we are to be going out with the gospel that we receive week by week, I want to adopt today not a law-centered approach, but a Christ-centered approach. For the one who gave that law has given us a supreme example of what it is to reach out. And that is what I want us to focus on today. So if you've come to the message this morning and you see the title and you say, oh no, outreach, this is gonna be one big guilt trip. Well, it may be, it may be, but I can't be responsible for what the Holy Spirit does. But what I've come to the message with is the desire that God would use this series to inspire us by the Christ who before he gave the command that we should reach out, lived the command and did so not as a drudgery, but as a delight in serving his father in heaven with a view that every last one of the elect of God, which is an innumerable company, come to faith in him. And so I trust today that whatever apprehensions we come to this subject, we might go away believing that there is more to worship than turning up on a Sunday morning, and we trust a Sunday evening, and saying, I have worshiped, but in the spirit of the worship that we offer God on the first day of the week, we then go out into the week and as the extension of worship, say, this is my Father's world, and this is the good news that I have received, and I cannot tell you anything better than this. Now, I say that in order to segue into the introduction, because we have two needs, it seems to me, in the world at present, as the Church of Jesus Christ. And the first need is of a balanced view of Jesus Christ. Why do we need a balanced view of Jesus Christ? Well, because as Orthodox Christians, 
endeavoring to be faithful to the biblical and historic truths of the Christian faith, we have majored throughout the ages on the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. There is only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And that is very precious truth. That is one more mediator than we deserve. And God has given him to us so that we have access to God in worship, we have access to God in life, we have access to God in the moment of our death. But by the 19th century, there emerged Victorian liberalism, which got tired of emphasis upon the supernatural content of the Christian faith, and said, well, actually, we don't hold to the supernatural. You will know better than I about Thomas Jefferson's Bible in which he extracted all the supernatural, came up with his own version of the Bible and said, well, actually, Christ is not unique. He's a good man, good leader. And all we need him for is a human example. And God educates the human race to understand his example, to do the best we can to follow his example. And that's the sum and substance of Christianity. And we, in reaction, said, oh, if you talk about the example of Christ, then you're going into dubious territory, dubious territory. And so we shied away from the example of Christ all the more, clinging on to his uniqueness. So that I have even heard in reformed circles of young people wearing a band, WWJD, what would Jesus do, being mocked for wearing that band? And the very people who would claim to be orthodox because we're holding on to the uniqueness of Christ and oh, the example of Christ, that's a bit liberal. But you only have to go back to the theology of John Calvin to see that the example of Christ was one of the main themes that he had in his theology with regard to the Christian life. And so it is quintessentially reformed then, not only to speak about the uniqueness of Christ as a divine savior who alone has power to save us, but also as a divine savior come in human flesh, who for the sake of his people, not only died once and for all upon the cross, but for the sake of our Christian living, has left us with an example of how to live out the Christian life and has done so perfectly. So I want to say then that when we talk today about the example of Christ, I am not saying, and if you are yet to be in Christ, please be clear on this, I am not saying that all you need to do in order to be saved is look at the New Testament, specifically people often quote the Sermon on the Mount and say, well, I'll just do my best. This is what Jesus do. What would Jesus do? And I hope at the end of the day I will be saved. No, the example of Christ is not for those who are yet to be in Christ, who have yet to turn from their sins unto God, to believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The example of Christ is for those who are already resting in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are now looking for concrete examples of how to live out the Christian life, to live from their salvation, not for their salvation. And so we come to the example of Christ today. But the second need is a balanced following of Christ. During the comfort of the hard-fought Judeo-Christian influence on Western life, 
which was basically purchased by the blood of the martyrs, and we have lived in the comfort zone of what they accomplished, we have fallen too often into the trap of thinking that all the Christianity is about is my personal salvation, my personal holiness. The Bible says without holiness, any, nobody shall see the Lord. And so therefore I need to be holy so that I can get into heaven and be assured that heaven is mine. And yet we need a balanced view, a balanced following of Christ to understand that West Michigan has changed. The Great Commission was always relevant to us, but in our comfort zone, we forgot the urgency of it. We tended to assume that so many around us know the Christian truth, can trot off the Apostles' Creed, have some understanding of the Heidelberg Catechism. They may even know something about the Westminster Standard, Shorter Catechism, number one. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so therefore, the gospel is not that urgent. And it has taken the changing even of West Michigan society for us to realize that the Great Commission never went away. And that following Christ with a holy life includes reaching the lost. And so we need to end this compartmentalism between this is my holy life and this is outreach. No, it's all together. A holy life is a life that reaches out because in the knowledge that God is holy and that I am to be holy, I cannot begin to imagine what it is like for someone to leave this scene, to appear before a just God, to appear before a holy God, and not to have a mediator. And so we come to this passage, and we do so, asking ourselves this question, Will we follow Christ fully, or will we continue to follow Christ selectively? Have we relegated the Great Commission to an optional extra to those who have some gift in this area? So our obedience to Christ then must be fashioned by love rather than by law. And yet there is a law, says the British evangelist John Blanchard, who died recently. No church is obedient that is not evangelistic. Well, to consider this Christ-centered approach, we begin with the first nine words of John 1.14. They teach us three principles. First, our medium, the word, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word is the means by which we reach the lost. The prologue of John's gospel indicates this in two ways. The first way is the centrality of the word. This is the fourth time in the prologue of John's gospel that the word appears. And of course, we can compare verse 14 here with what we've already seen in verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And there John says that the word was in the beginning. In other words, at the creation, the word was already existence. Otherwise, he could not be the agent through which the creation came into being. Then he goes on to say the word was with God. Literally, the word was toward God. 
wherein John is hinting at the Trinity, noting that although the word was preexistent, he was not the totality of God. Rather, this idea of the word being toward God speaks of a personal relationship between the word and God. And some have gone further to say that the word pros or with or toward bespeaks of the eternally and perfectly flowing love between the word and God. And then John says the word was God. To make clear what is already implied, he states, the word was God, as if he's putting it in capital letters with an exclamation mark. The divinity that belongs otherwise to God also belongs to the word. So while then the word and God are distinct, they are nevertheless one, co-equally personal and divine. Well, you say that's nice theology, but what's it got to do with outreach? Well, let me say several things about this. First of all, the origin of outreach. We could not reach out to others if God had not first reached out to us. And God could not reach out to us if there were not within his being a distinctiveness of persons. And then we think of the focus of outreach, while the three persons of the Godhead are co-equal in power and in glory. Our focus in outreach is on the word, since it is through the word that the gospel of God's grace has come to us. So reading verse 14 then, in the light of verse one, we may say to adapt a Reformation mantra, that while we are saved by the word alone, we are not saved by the word that is alone. The word is set within the context of the Father and of the Spirit. And then there's the end of outreach. As the gospel begins with the grace of God, so it ends or culminates with the glory of God. R.B. Kuyper, who was a local theologian here, says this, what above all makes evangelism urgent is its contribution to the hastening of the day when God shall receive all glory due to his great and his holy name. And it is because of this emphasis upon the word that we in the Reformed Church emphasize that outreach is to be done by the word, for the word, for the glory of the word. We do not take hold of any means possible to bring forth the gospel, but we focus upon the written words, which at its heart reveals the living word. And we'll come to the identity of the living word in a moment. So the first way then is the centrality of the word. And then the second way in relevance to our medium is the use of the word. You may be wondering, well, why? I've never understood why would John, when he comes to his gospel, why doesn't he just say, in the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with God, and the Son was God? Why does he have to speak in this cryptic way that we have to try and understand what he's speaking about? Well, would you believe that in the midst of writing this prologue and then going on to write the entire gospel of John, he's actually engaging in outreach. And if you go to chapter 20 and verse 31, he tells you why exactly he's writing. These signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
So as he begins to write his gospel, which is an evangelistic tract, he has in mind different sorts of readers. He has in mind Jewish readers on the one hand, and he has in mind Gentile readers on the other. And he's trying to keep both together. And so by this use of the word, he is piquing the interest of both sets of readers to try and keep them together so that he can create an opportunity to speak the gospel. And so for the, for the Jewish readers, the word was very important. It brought to mind the creative power of God. Listen to Psalm 33 verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. They heard the term, the word. They then thought about the prophets who kept saying, thus saith the Lord. And so when John writes, in the beginning was the word, his Jewish readers, hearing from the scroll about the word, think, ah, God is in view. This great monotheistic entity is in view. The one who created this world, the one who spoke through the prophets, you've got my attention, John. But they're not the only readers. Then there are the Gentile readers. And in the Greek here, verse 14, the word is the logos, hologos. And they also have their conception of the word. And so there were the Stoics. And so when they see reference to the word, they say, oh, Stoicism, the logos, that's the rational principle that governs everything. And some other Gentiles would have said, ah, we remember the writings of the Jewish man Philo, who was actually drawing from the Greek philosopher Plato, and oh, he talked about the Logos being the ideal man. Oh, well, John, you've got our interest. We don't know what you're talking about, but you've caught our attention. And so even in the midst of writing this gospel, John is engaged upon a strategic mission to engage these unbelieving hearers in what is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if I may speak for a moment about the way. That is our philosophy with regards to the front page of the way. You take hold of something in the news. This issue, the idea of monarchy, kingship. It's something that people in different parts of the world are speaking about. Oh, uh, Prince Philip has just died. People have an interest in that. Queen Elizabeth has been on the throne 69 years all over the world. She's head of state in 16 nations. Oh. I'm interested in the royal family, but I'm also troubled about what's happening in some of these Middle Eastern states where they have autocratic rulers. And from there, going from the cryptic to the Bible, and from the Bible to the call to believe. And John's doing exactly that here. He begins with the cryptic, the word. And from the word, he then speaks about the gospel. How much there is to learn from the apostles. While the word was unquestionably central to their outreach, they pondered how to get a hearing for the word cross-culturally. And this is why it is incredibly important for us to think through outreach in our day. I'm amazed how, as one of the latest amongst us to come to America, there may be others who've come more recently than I, 21 years ago, but one of the things that fascinated me when I came to America, starting off in Pennsylvania, huh, people are telling me that there's a Welsh community in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Now, why are the Welsh, when they left Wales, why did they settle in Scranton? Oh, well, you see, it's a mining area. Oh, 
Wales is full of mines. Oh, and then you move to West Michigan. Why are all the Dutch here? Well, it's flat. Yeah, I've been to Holland. It's flat there too. Oh. So you've got all these communities coming into America, searching for places that look like home, setting down their establishments there, and that's the way America has grown up. And yet, what are we finding in our own day as people have got transport, people move for jobs, that there is a breakdown of these settlements? And so we are finding that whereas in Grand Rapids, well, you had the Dutch community, you had the Lithuanian community, you had the Polish community, they didn't mix. In fact, they fought in school. Now we're finding, well, what do we do in the church? Where we are living in a mobile society, where our traditional communities are breaking down, we're living next to people from different cultural settings, different cultural backgrounds. And John gives us an illustration. He says, in the beginning was the word. I'm trying to keep you all together because as I keep you all together, I'm going to drop a bombshell on you because I want to create the atmosphere, create the forum in which I can teach you whether you be Jewish or whether you be Gentile, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this, I put it to us, is one of the great challenges of our day. And so we look secondly at our motivation. The word, says John, became flesh. This is the bombshell. You can imagine the Jewish and Gentile readers following him. We're intrigued. Our interest is piqued. Who is the word? And then John says, but the word became flesh. Well, as monotheists, Jewish readers, although expecting a Messiah, opposed Jesus' claim that God was incarnate. He was God incarnate. The Greeks would have been flummoxed by the abstract idea of the Logos becoming flesh. And yet John's endeavor is to reach his readers with the gospel. And we can glean then from Christ's incarnation certain lessons, three lessons about outreach. The first is that the word reached out to us in love. This is the first of many references in John's gospel to God's extension of his love beyond himself. Think of how John's gospel goes on to John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Well, did it mean that he was impoverished in his experience of love before he loved the world? No. There was this eternally perfect flowing love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Full satisfaction in the love of one another and in the love of the divine self. God did not need to love the world in order to be love. And then John's gospel goes on, chapter 6, verse 29. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. John eleven forty two. 42. Christ prays to the Father before raising Lazarus from the dead. Not because he doesn't trust the Father to raise Lazarus from the dead, but that they may believe that you sent me. John 13, 1. He loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. The great high priestly prayer of Jesus, John 17, 1 to 2. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your, your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So by extending the divine love beyond the Godhead in the word made flesh, we are challenged by the example of God in Christ to extend 
God's love beyond ourselves. This is the call that has come to us in our day in particular. It is right and proper that we love ourselves. Paul says to the Ephesians, no, no man ever yet hated his own flesh. And yet, when we look at Christ, we look at the one who in his person, in his work, was the expression of divine love going beyond God. And in that example, we have the call to love beyond ourselves, to love beyond our nuclear family, to love beyond our church family. This is what we're trying to do, building up Wednesday night fellowships. This is what we're seeking to do when we ask the ushers to distribute Bibles to visitors coming in. We are seeking to ready the church so that as we latch on to this Christological example of the extension of the love of God beyond ourselves, and God begins to give us success, for this is his will, and we begin to see visitors coming into our midst who don't have a Bible, who don't know what a Christian community looks like, we may be ready to host them and to host them well. But then the second thing we learn about our motivation is that the word stooped down in love. In becoming flesh, the word never ceased to be divine. Rather, in entering our humiliation, he took on two elements of full humanity, a human body. He's the agent of creation. We can see that in verse 2. And yet he becomes creaturely for our sakes. And with a human body, he has driven a human nature. This was added to his person, neither mixed with his divine nature nor detached from his divine nature. He is one person, not two persons. And by becoming the God-man, he could relate to us, he could live for us, he could die for us. So if the word then could stoop down in love to love inferiors, we have to ask ourselves the question, why do we find it so hard to love outside of ourself? To love outside of our nuclear family? To love outside of our church family? For after all, we're not talking about us being divine and those outside the church being human. We're talking about us being human, them being human. So whereas the word in becoming flesh stoops down to those who are inferior beings, it should be so much easier for us to relate to those outside our nuclear families, outside our church family, because they are one and the same, made in the image of God, and like us by nature, with vestiges of that image because we have fallen. And yet because we have fallen, we fall into the trap of thinking that if somebody is poor, they are of necessity inferior. If somebody is scarred by sin more than I have been, then they are somehow inferior. But it cuts against the whole nature of the gospel. If we begin to think that they are inferior because their story is different, not at all, not at all. God is as reactive in his holiness to respectable sins, so-called, as to other sins beside. 
And so we need to think these things through and to have this open-mindedness, open-heartedness to those who are around us. And the third thing the, th the word did in becoming flesh, he risked himself in love. What traumas of soul did the word know? Well, he risked his emotions. John has already alluded to this in verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And then he risked his community. He had had this perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. And yet he gave it up to come into this world. He still has constant contact with the Father. And yet he's going towards a cross wherein as sin bearer, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He becomes a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And then he risks his body. Not only was he tired and drained throughout the course of his ministry, but he puts everything on the line and was crucified. So we ask ourselves, why then by comparison do we dither with regard to outreach? Why do we dither? Is it because we fear rejection? Is it because we fear losing community? Is it because we fear death? We prefer, as it were, to remain in heaven than to venture into the world. And so one of the great temptations facing us today is the idea that we can set up a Christian ghetto and still think we are faithful to God. The idea of a Christian ghetto is unbiblical. And it is a temptation which we need to shun. And so we come then thirdly to our manner. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word not only became flesh, he lived among us. He just didn't fly by and drop out of an airplane some hints of good news. No, having become flesh, he lives among us. And so there are two principles to, to notice here. The first is to be present. Literally, Christ pitched his tabernacle. The tabernacle was where God met with his people. It's commanded in Exodus 25, 8. Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. So Christ then as Emmanuel becomes the culmination of God's old covenant promise to dwell among his people. So he is in the world without becoming of the world. Now we, we like that phrase, don't we? We are to be in the world, but not of the world. But sometimes we so emphasize not being of the world that we have to ask ourselves, are we really in the world? And I know from the little I know of some of you that some of you really are in the world as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Had an email message or Facebook message recently from a sister in the congregation engaged in the world, dwelling in the world as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Some of you are on committees and boards where you are emulating the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ who dwelt among them. He didn't just fly by. He didn't just come by in his sailboat throwing out pieces of literature onto the coast of the Sea of Galilee. He was amongst the people. He was in touching distance of the people. He was a presence among the people. 
So we are good at saying that we are not of the world, but are we really in the world? I've been challenged of late by my older brother. He only came to faith 10 years ago. <laughs> and you'd have to know my older brother, he's so shy. And yet when the Lord saved him, he sort of brought him right out of his shell. And so 10 years old, 10 years old as a, a babe in the faith in the same year, He's become for the first time a deacon in his church, but he's also now the deputy mayor of the town. And he tells me about what he's trying to do as a deputy mayor of the town in a town that's known for two things, idolatry and drunkenness. And I'm challenged, I have to say, I'm really challenged because he's dwelling amongst them. So he says, well, what I do is this, I... I got published 900 cards in my ward and I, I gave them out to the neighborhood. I went door to door following surgery and gave out cards saying, I'm your new counselor. And I think he put the rest of the council to shame. I believe that because the next year they made him deputy mayor. And so he sees the war memorial and he sees that some names are missing from World War I, World War II. He's a former soldier. So he does the research to get more names engraved on the war memorial. And he's saying our town doesn't need to be known for drunkenness and idolatry. Our town needs to be known for family activities, healthy activities. And recently I'm told that uh, there was a house fire and somebody was killed in the house fire. The police put up a cordon around the house fire and the neighbors we're there looking on at the house as it's burning down with somebody dead inside. And my brother, as the counselor comes and he goes to the cordon, the police say, you can't go through the cordon. Somebody from the council, a council estate, a poor estate comes out and says, that's our counselor. The police let him through. And I'm challenged by that. I can preach sermons. I can write literature and maybe that's my calling. But I look at my older brother, a young bro brother in the Lord. Living in the town for 30 years, yes, I've had a more mobile existence. But he's dwelling amongst them. And in the hour of the need of the people, that's our counselor. And I bless God for those of you who are living in Coopersville, who are living in Marne, presence in your community, for that's what Jesus did. And why are we a presence? Well, to be a light. Notice how John unpacks the idea of the word coming into the world, verses four to five. In him was life. The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome the light. Indeed, John's gospel goes on to say in 319 that those in the darkness seek to evade the light. And so we need to understand that when we go out of these doors, we are not only to go as a presence in the community, not hiding away in our Christian ghetto, but being out there in the community, but to realize when we go, we go as receptacles of light, dispelling darkness, challenging darkness, wherever we go. And I don't think we understand just how powerful it is to be full of the Holy Spirit, which is one of the reasons we come to worship, that we might be refilled week by week and through an obedient life go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happens? People notice. You know, Brenda and I, I may have told you this before, but it bears repeating. Had a wonderful opportunity a number of years ago with a lady who had come from Iran 
She'd never seen her children since they'd become Christians. And she wanted to speak to the local imam, and I was the local imam. So he went to speak to this dear lady, Farouk. Coming out of the darkness of Iran. And what is she saying as we're sitting there trying to communicate to her the gospel through translation? And she says, and it's told us through translation, I see light about you. I see light about you. Really? Duh. Don't I believe that I'm indwelt by the Spirit of God? And it may not be such a radical sighting as Farouk had coming from Iran, but that should be the experience and probably is the experience of the people around us more than we know when we're present in our community. We're not only living amongst them, but a light amongst them. So I leave us with this question this morning. Are we fully or selectively followers of Jesus Christ? Are we Christians solely for what we get out of Christ or for what others can receive from him too? One writer, Everett Cattell, writes, the incarnation is the pattern for all evangelism. Jesus Christ was totally in the world, yet wholly uncontaminated by it. So what's the message this morning? Well, insofar as our medium, love the word, the written word, but the written word because it teaches us about the living word. What about our motivation? Yearn after the lost. Join in prayer for them. Get the literature off the back of the narthex. It doesn't belong there. It belongs in the hands of those who need the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray for the elect throughout the day. Be ready to give a reason. And our manner, engage the lost. Let's not run from them. The Apostle John goes on to say, 1 John 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I came home from university the first term, telling my parents, well, you see, I went to my politics tutorial. The first thing the lecturer, Dr. Boyce, said to, said to us was, you don't believe in God. You don't believe in God. He, he threw down the gauntlet. You don't believe in God. I went home and told my father that, who was, of course, former militant atheist. He said, you go back, laddie boy, and you remember that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. I never forgot it. The part of the reason people react against Christians is because they are the ones living in fear and they have every reason to live in fear. They have every reason to fear God. They have every reason to fear your testimony and mine. But it's our privilege to disarm them by following the word who became flesh and dwelt amongst us. May God grant us the grace then to apply 
some principles of outreach, and tonight then we'll come back to some prospects of outreach, looking at the remainder of the passage. May God bless these thoughts. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you for its inspiration. Thank you, Father, for its education. Thank you, Father, even for its rebuke. But we pray that we'd be inspired not simply by the pages of Scripture, but by the living word, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you ever sent him to save us. And pray, Father, that as his followers, we would fully embrace his example. And that we would see people come to faith through our witness and the church of Christ being built up in our day. So we ask your blessing to follow not only this word, but this series, and that you would be transforming our minds and our hearts and our wills, that we would be sold out for you and for your glory in our day. We have only one life. It will soon be past, and only what's done for Christ will last. Hear us then, O Lord, we beseech you. In Jesus' great name. Amen.